Mother tongue, I assume, no? Uh, English? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. How have you been getting along with the humidity here in central Texas? <laughs> I haven't been getting along. Yeah, yet, I so. <laughs> and I got out of the plane last night and I thought, oh, I really packed the wrong clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. This is your host, Sergio Glujar, joined by my co-host today, Eliza Fisher. Hi, Eliza. Hi. And we are joined today by Dr. Friederike Kinkovac from the Hannah Arendt Institute in Dresden. And we are here to talk about her recently published book, came out this year from Indiana University Press, called Budapest Children, Humanitarian Relief in the Aftermath of the Great War. It's not a typical text. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Dr. Kin Kovac. Hello, everyone. So, Dr. Kovac, I think a good place to start would be what is your what was your general motivation for writing the book? Thanks a lot for the invitation to speak here for the first time about my book. It's funny, you write this book and then it's out, and I think this is really a nice uh, way to speak about my book. So my first monograph was on underground culture and underground literature during the Cold War, and it was pretty much an intellectual history. So I felt I would like to write a book which is rather in the field of social history. So in Germany, you need to write a second book, Habilitation. I'm not sure if it's really necessary to still write Habilitations, but I had to do so. And for Habilitation, you need to switch the time period and the topic. And I decided I think I would be really interested to write a book in the field of the history of childhood and to also switch to the period of the First World War. So what I did is I was sitting in in Budapest in the Széchenyi Library, which is one of the main libraries in Budapest, and I was scrolling through journals and newspapers of the First World War and the post-war period, and I encountered a lot of visuals of suffering, hungry children, and lots of humanitarians popping up in Budapest, taking care of Budapest children. And I was curious, how does it come that so many internationals are sort of getting excited and interested in Budapest children? And I wondered, would it not be worth as a research topic to focus on understanding why did the Hungarian child, and particularly the child from Budapest, trigger such an international uh, interest? And so I thought that would be worth to tell as a story. And I think it's always interesting or relevant to figure out why biographically you are drawn to certain mm -hmm. topics. So I have a Hungarian connection, I myself am German, but I thought I think I would really like to try out now if my Hungarian is good enough <laughs> to go to Hungarian <laughs> right. archives and to uh, sort of really incorporate Hungarian sources. So that was sort of a bit daring and I'm still suffering when I go to archives because Hungarian is a really painful language. So that was one point. <laughs> then another point was that I was uh, always sort of struck by the uh, segregation of Eastern and Western European history. Uh -huh. And I was uh, hoping that that would be a topic through which one could write an integrated European history. So not writing East European history or Central European history and Western European history, but that this case of Budapest children would be a way to tell a transatlantic and transnational history. And perhaps the last note, why always transatlantic? So my first book was transatlantic and my second book is transatlantic. And we found a diary in my family from my great-grandfather who immigrated to the United States in the 19th century in the 1830s and was commuting between the 1830s and 1890s between Germany and the United States, California, San Jose. 
So I finally figured out why I might be so drawn <laughs> to a, a transatlantic approach and to American history. So I think uh, biography always sort of triggers your particular interest in certain topics. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very well said. Can you tell us a little bit more about this transatlantic approach that you took in crafting the, the book? So I was really hoping not to write a history of classical humanitarianism, Western humanitarianism to backward Eastern Europe. But I was hoping to write a history of the everyday interactions between Western humanitarians and local welfare organizations and activists. So in my approach, I look at Western European and transatlantic organizations like the American Relief Administration, mm -hmm. Save the Children, the International Red Cross, the American Red Cross. And on the other hand, I look at all the Hungarian institutions and initiatives which, which had made the ground for this uh, humanitarian intervention, because it was not like how many Americans wanted to see Central Europe or Budapest children, that it was backward, uh, unprofessional, that there was no welfare. No, I would like to really argue that there was a lot of professionalization already happening within the welfare system. It, there was a lack of goods and means in the post-war period, so the relief was needed. Needed, but it was not about the system or the welfare system which was already available. So I was interested to really uh, write a transnational and transatlantic history where I look at the interactions between the agents coming from abroad and those welfare workers who are in Budapest. So you mentioned that Budapest was really a wonderful example of the phenomenon of humanitarian aid, international humanitarian aid in the post-war period. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about why Budapest is such a great example of that. Yeah, I would like to start here with a recollection of a child, of a former child, because I interviewed still a number of children who were uh, sent abroad in the post-war period, and she remembered being 99 years old. So I did interviews for those who lived in the post-war period, but now they're all dead. And she remembered that all children in Hungary were suffering, but that Budapest was a hellhole, that children were starving particularly much in Budapest. And I think that was interesting to see how the, uh, Budapest turns to, into a, something like a condensed space of suffering. And sure, uh, since industrialization, modernization, most of the Central and East European capitals went through problems of housing, living conditions, precarious sanitary uh, conditions. And I, I was really curious, what was the impact and the, what were the implications of the post-war period to trigger and to worsen the situation of Budapest, the civilian population there, but particular of the children? And if you look at the post-war period, and therefore I think it's a topic big enough for a habilitation, usually you're supposed to write these long books over the 19th and 20th century, but I decided that I want to focus on these few years because it's a huge mess. So, <laughs> yeah, so you have the end of the uh, empire, so you have the imperial uh, dissolution, you have a Bolshevik revolution, you have a blockade, you have the white terror with anti-Semitic pogroms, um, you have a, a food scarcity. I'm careful to use the word of famine because I rather talk about the scarcity of food. And then you have the shift towards the right-wing government of Miklos Horthy. So it is really, a, I would say, a period of multiple crises. 
Jay Winter talks in the war period of nerve centers, and I think Budapest is one of those nerve centers, but a nerve center of post-war transformation. Wow. It's a period of multiple transformations, be it political, social, etc. And all these factors had an impact on children's lives, so their education was disrupted, they were suffering from neglect, parents were unemployed, there was mass migration from the ceded territories, that resulted in precarious housing conditions. So the child really, or Budapest children, really are sort of a perfect example to look at what did it mean to live in the post-war period and to live through a period of political transformation. Well, fantastic. So so given this, I'm, uh, I imagine our listeners would be interested to learn a little bit more about the dynamics of that migration you mentioned and, and how it affected the whole conversation around the immediate post-war context, humanitarian aid, the role of children and all of this and so on. So in my book, I look at two types of migration. On the one hand, I look at the mass migration of around 400, 500,000 Hungarians. Those numbers are never fixed and it's always a debate. But Hungary lost with the signing of the Treaty of Trianon on 4th of June 1920, lost two-thirds of its territory, but the migration didn't start then, but already started during the war. And a lot of these migrants ended up in Budapest. And what is interesting about these migrants is that they had a very difficult time to integrate into Hungarian society uh-huh. because many of them were stranded at Budapest train stations. They became known as the railway car dwellers. And they were stuck there, uh, like in limbo, not for weeks, but months or even years. There was no heating. There was no proper housing. Sometimes I found images from inside these railway car or these boxes that eight, nine children were assembled in one car box. I think that was often the result of parents going to work and then they decided to bring all the children together that they would not be neglected in their everyday life. But the problem was also with a massive migration of Hungarians that the children in Budapest would often be neglected. They would not be supervised. They would take up roles which are unchildlike. So they would need to stand in bread lines. They wouldn't have shoes to walk to school because parents weren't having a decent income. And lots of these migrants from Transylvania, for instance, were coming from the better of classes and they would experience uh, social um, decline or they lost their standing. They lost their home, their standing and ended up in Budapest not integrated. And I think that has implications until today on the lost territories, the lost home. So it's a sort of traumatic experience for many of these migrants, and it lasts until day to day in the commemoration of Trianon. Right. I, I believe in your book, you even uh, you, you have a quote about Transylvania as the lost Eden. Yeah, absolutely. Striking. Tomorrow, after tomorrow, we will talk about in the conference on childhood and trauma, we will talk about traumatic experiences in the past of children and what implications they have for their future identities and lives. So apart from that type of migration, I also look at children's evacuation in the post-war period. Around 50,000 Hungarian children were sent to Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, Britain. Would be a lovely research project if I once would have enough money to do, to, 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 to do a comparative study of all these displacements of children in the post-war periods. And one could do a comparative study of the post-World War II period, other periods of crisis and war. But in the post-World War I period, 50,000 children were sent away. 
It was an idea to better feed them, to better heal them, to provide for them. And still, I think it's pretty problematic because think about what, what that means if you're taken from one country to another. If you're at a young age, half a year really matters. You lose your mother tongue, you lose your relationship to your birth family, you are integrated into a foster family. One of the interviewers I talked to, she said that those few months in Holland were as valuable as almost nothing in her life afterwards. And all of her life story was very much built up on those few months abroad. But another interview said that these uh, months or weeks abroad had serious implications on her own relationships with her birth parents. She wouldn't recognize her parents wow. when she returned. What does it mean? So I think it's a, it's a complicated story of these evacuations. But I think it's a topic which is really relevant. No doubt, no doubt. And especially today, as you said. So one of the one of the main focuses, one of the main themes of the book is that of uh, sort of the very body of children and the experience of hunger and how those contribute to a uh, visual language of the uh, immediate post-war context. I'd be fascinated to hear more about how those work. Thanks a lot. Uh, I think that's sort of the core topic of my book, because as I said in the very beginning of the interview, is that I was struck by these uh, images of starving and suffering children. And be it in Geneva, in the archives, in Birmingham, in Stanford or wherever, I always encountered the very same images adapted to the specific audience's readerships. So the images were circulating of the suffering child. What I'm arguing in my book is that the child's body turns into an icon of post-war suffering, but not just of post-war suffering, but also of the Hungarian nation, of the Hungarian state, which has lost a huge part of its own territory. So I think for Miklos Horty and right-wing people at the time, it was interesting to draw the comparison between the child's body and the Hungarian state's body. And I think here lies a really great potential to attract compassion, pity, and support for the plight of Budapest suffering children. So I see here, here and I think, a core aspect of the post-war narrative. So Hungary was not, um, was not a victim state during the war, but it presented itself as a victim nation in the post-war, and that lasts until today. And yeah, I think it's, uh, it's an issue which I think is highly problematic. Okay, so, so maybe now would be an appropriate time to just do a little bit of, of a short contextual summary of the events of World War I as they, as they pertain to these issues of Hungarian migration, the experience of children, and maybe, as you alluded to earlier, how, uh, how these resulting images end up being sort of instrumentalized by the state. Okay, I talk a bit about the visuals because, so if you think as Americans about the work of Louis Hein mm. and Jacob Rice, who in the late 19th century wanted to sort of draw attention to how the other half lived. And I think what you see in the post-war period is sort of an adaptation to this kind of logic. You have a lot of humanitarians going to the poverty dwellings, to the slums, taking pictures to document the suffering of the refugees and their children and to publicize these images 
internationally. So uh, from the local to the glo global, mm -hmm. you have sort of the emergence of an international visual language which is used to draw attention to the suffering of Hungary, its children, and to call for uh, financial support and donations on behalf of Hungary's children. Mm -hmm. So uh, I found a huge bulk of visuals. You see in my book, and I had to struggle a lot with obtaining copyrights uh, in COVID period, which is lovely because every archive, <laughs> every archive is closed and yeah. to get better resolution images, it was really painful. But in the end, I managed to have 77 images in my book because I think it is a really valuable part of the research. And not just photography, which was a huge uh, important aspect of humanitarianism, but uh, also hand drawings of children, uh, depictions of materials which were given to children, like cribs or mm -hmm. toys, etc. Mm -hmm. So I think the visual part is not an art historical approach, but it's simply a part of the source body which I encountered. Part of the, the, the kind of narratives of humanitarian aid that you discuss, as I understood it, was this idea of international humanitarian aid being offered not only for, you know, the very valuable and true reason of helping the children, but also demonstrating one, one's own power as an international player, right? Yeah, I have perhaps a too critical reading in my book of humanitarianism <laughs> because indeed it helped a lot of children. So a lot of children received an amazing amount of food and support in this immediate post-war period. So imagine two years prior to that, the, the, these states were still fighting with each other. Right, right. And then it is indeed a, a great adventure to provide relief on that scale to a former enemy state. So mm -hmm. I think in itself, it's something, uh, it's a great initiative. However, when you think that humanitarian is supposed to impartial, neutral, right, independent, right, right, right. then I think I can just disagree with that <laughs> because it's way. highly political. Uh, first of all, I think what is deeply problematic about humanitarianism in itself is that it lives of war and it lives yeah. of crisis. So if there hadn't been that kind of suffering and that kind of crisis, then that kind of relief would have not been necessary. So the scale of destruction, the scale of corporal suffering made it necessary that that kind of relief became provided. Second, I think the, the fact that humanitarianism was provided by a wealthy state, mostly the United States, to a, very, to a country which was very much in need of relief, of donations, creates always an imbalance of power. And I think that were always fed into the political agendas of the involved countries. So the United States put on every feeding station, on every single table, an American flag. So the children, so it's like the power of food. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you eat American food and you automatically associate the American nation with that type of food you receive on that specific day. It's, it's a kind way of providing patriotism uh, and of sort of exhibiting American wealth, American capitalism, modernity, etc. Still, I think it had long-term implications in creating a very strong imbalance between these two states, between the donating and the receiving state. This is remarkable because it's just occurred to me, it's almost like a historical foreshadowing of the Marshall Plan. Yeah, sure. Right? I mean, I, I remember I, I had an old German professor from Bavaria who 
uh, still was five years old in the immediate post-World War II period, and he still associates Hershey's or any kind of chocolate with America because yeah. it was parachuted into the, sure. yeah. One of the articles I'm planning for the next years is to write a comparative study of the post-World War I and the post-World War II wow. period because uh, the children were also sent away after the Second World War. And I would be just curious what changed. And uh, some of the actors I'm looking at, like Julia Wojka, she still remained active in the post-World War II period. Uh -huh. But what does it mean? Just imagine you provide relief after one World War right. and then comes another World War, mm -hmm. which has a far more sure. uh, disastrous sure. Sure. impact on Central and Eastern Europe. So something I'd be interested in hearing about, of course, World War I was unprecedented, you know, in the scale of destruction. But in response to that, you kind of say that humanitarian aid in response took on an entirely new dimension, new scale in the post-war period. I'd like to hear about Thanks that. Thanks a lot for that question. Yeah, Deborah Dwork is putting out the thesis, war is good for babies. <laughs> I think it's, uh, again, That's a new one, yeah. <laughs> but I think what I'm trying to do is I try to test that argument. Not, I'm not saying that it was great that the war and the post-war was so problematic but there was one dimension in which it was really contributing both to the emergence of relief on such a scale, on a cooperation between all the involved agents. So these were the foreign missions. They sat together at a joint table and they were discussing how we can best provide relief to the children. So you have cooperation, you have rapprochement, you have pacification. Uh, and so, 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 such a short period after the war ended, I, I find it still amazing that you have this kind of initiative. And what I argue is that in Hungary, you had already a child protective system before the war or even developing in the war, but the post-war period and this input from the humanitarians really triggered and contributed to the expansion and professionalization of welfare, of child welfare system in Hungary. So I think World War I was essential in triggering a new awareness of children's needs. Uh, you can see the 1924 declarations on the right of the child which had a few formulations of that the child should be the first to receive relief in times of distress. It should be the first to be fed. It should be the, have a chance to educate itself. And I find it super interesting that that uh, uh, it, uh, was signed in 1924, so four years after this initiative sort of started. Well, and that's a remarkable transformation, right? I, I mean, I'm certainly no historian of childhood, but my layman's understanding is that prior, you know, the child was effectively the property of the parents, and the, the relationship to children was very different than what we might understand today. So would you argue that the humanitarian movement post-World War I sort of helped form a new relationship towards children? I think it first, first of all realized the implications of war, crisis, and political distress on those who are the most vulnerable. So like the elderly or the dis disabled, children are just one social group who are becoming particularly vulnerable in these times of distress. I think currently in the Ukrainian crisis, we see that again, not just hundred thousands are migrating, they are forcefully deported to Russia. One, we are not doing anything <laughs> against that. So I think what this declaration says is that we should take care of those who cannot have a voice themselves. 
But I, what I find interesting, so there's a declaration in 1924, and then there's a declaration in 1989, that in the first declaration in 24, it just says that the children should be relieved, they should be fed, etc. But in 1989, there's one paragraph nine, which says the child should not be separated from his or her parents against his, his or her own will. And that was absolutely not yet the case or the discussion in the post-World War I period. But so I think throughout the 20th century, a new awareness emerged, which sort of gave children also a right to decide on their own behalf. Because child separation, I think they realized that unaccompanied migration and separation might be far more traumatic for children than to live through war and distress together with their parents. Fantastic. And so stepping back a little bit then, what unique historical perspectives do we get out of doing a history of childhood in particular? How does this affect the approach in general? I think at least in Germany, and I would say in many countries still, the history of childhood is a marginal topic. Then you have the marginalization of Central and Eastern European mm -hmm. history as well. So you could have a double marginalized right, right, history. Right, right. But I think that through the history of childhood, you can look at all topics of a certain period, all the political implications, the labor market, the economic situations, everything is mirrored in the, in the life of children because they are dependent on their parents. Their parents are dependent on the labor market. So I think it's absolutely crazy to think that children are just a side topic. No, they are a core topic. And whenever nations are sort of figuring out their future or are talking about their own identity, it's often about the future generations. So the topic of childhood, I think, lies at the core of history. And I think that's often not properly perceived. That's a fantastic response. Yes. So Dr. Kim Kovac, you are in town here in Austin, Texas for a conference being held at UT, Children in Crisis, Trauma, Epidemics, and Children's Well-Being in Cross-Cultural and Historical Perspective. Excited for that? Yeah, I'm super excited for that. Uh, it's really interdisciplinary approach to childhood and crisis. And what I find interesting about that is that they're trying to sort of bring the present together with the past. So look at what are the implications of the corona pandemic and possibly also of the war in Ukraine. See how do children respond to these kind of crises and what can we learn from the past in protecting children in periods of war and crisis. So I think it's really interesting to sit together with psychiatrists, psychologists, health professionals and some historians to reflect on what is what are the implications of war and crisis on children today and in the past, and how can we help? And I'm really thankful to Stephen Mintz and to the Society for the History of Childhood and Youth who invited me. So yes, I'm super thrilled to be part of that. Before we let you go, I want to hear a little bit about this uh, book series, Worlds in Crisis, Refugees, Asylum, and Forced Migration, edited by Elizabeth Dunn and uh, Georgina Ramsey from Indiana University Press, which is the same press that's just uh, published your book. Yeah, I was super happy to be part of this book series. I met Elizabeth Dunn at the Graduate School for East European Studies in Regensburg. And uh, once my habilitation was done, so we got in touch and she asked, now, when is your book ready? And you know, there's a huge uh, transformation from habilitation to a proper book, sure. which can be published. But I think they did a really great job in supporting me in that process. So I can really recommend that series for all, all the scholars who are working on migration and displacement in past and present. Excellent. And once again, that's 
series is called Worlds in Crisis, Refugees, Asylum, and Forced Migration, published by Indiana University Press. Well, Dr. Kim Kovac, it's been such a pleasure to have you today. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks a lot. This was great. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 